We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, episode 16. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Today, we are interviewing Fidel Montero, who's the principal at Alta High School. We're going to talk mostly about his background today because it's pretty fascinating. Um, He is the son of a migrant worker in California, and his experience growing up gave him a different lens through which to look at education, and he is super inspiring and a great, great human being. I'm very glad that had the opportunity to interview him. I hope that you enjoy it today. We're going to touch on a lot of different topics. We're going to talk about how you can help your multicultural students, regardless of what race you are and how you can focus on engaging and supporting them. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, Fidel's work with Greta Pruitt and Los Angeles Unified School District, where he was tasked with bringing together African-American parents and Latino parents and helping them work together. Really fascinating stuff. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, SaneBox, for um, supporting us. Go to SaneBox.com or click on the link in the show notes and you can start a free trial to that service. What that service does is it takes the insanity out of your email and helps you focus on the emails that you need when you need them. Sign up for a trial. You can know that uh, SaneBox cares about your privacy and does not let your emails touch their server. Only your headers go there, which is geek speak for your email stays with you, doesn't get transferred over to them. You know what I did for my dissertation? Because I did a lot of interviews. I just used my iPhone. Uh-huh. And then um, 
I uploaded the file to a software um, that transcribes the, the, you know, helps you to transcribe the uh-huh. data. And then from that, from the transcription, then I used the, another software called NVivo, which is a uh, qualitative data analysis In software. Vivo? Uh-huh. Okay. So it's like Excel for uh-huh. for words. That sounds pretty good. Um, what was the software you transcribed? Transcription? Gosh, I'd have to look it up. Um, Dragon Dictate, that's a popular one. I got to look it up. I can't remember. It was pretty slick that in that once you had your audio file, then you it, you just contr- you you know designated what uh, keys you were going to use to play and stop. So instead of needing a foot paddle like the old school way, right. you just, you know, hit like the arrows here, right? Okay. That's pretty cool. All right. I've used a program like that, but I use the number keys up top. Yeah, sure. And that would, uh, that would do play or stop or whatever. Yeah, same thing. Cool. So then you did the transcription yourself. I did. And I and the reason why is because they, all my interviews were in Spanish. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Latino parents. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I just felt. More comfortable doing it myself. Well, that's a lot of work. I believe it. Yeah, it's a lot of hours of transcribing. Yeah, I've tried trans- transcribing things, and it just takes six times so much time. Mm-hmm. I met a stenographer though, and she can type as fast as people can speak, sometimes even faster. And um, and she does closed captioning for the um, for the church's broadcast. Mm-hmm. And I watched her type on her little special keyboard, and it was amazing. Really? Oh, it was so cool. Because as somebody was talking, she would just... Yeah. It was like playing the piano is what it looked like, the way her fingers were moving. And there's only two, I think, rows on a stenographer's keyboard. And it was... It just looked cool. It was huh. really neat. She was so fast. It was unreal. Yeah, so you can use somebody like that and pay them, you know. Yeah. Whatever but, they charge. Yeah. She, it might be worth it. Lot, <laughs> might be worth it, though. I'm telling you. That. So, what was your uh, doctorate in? What were you doing the research? Well, so my overall doctorate was a management. It was a management doctorate, right? My the emphasis and it the um, managing uh, urban school districts. So it was the urban superintendency program. The name of the program. Mm-hmm. My particular emphasis was on how school districts um, that have changing demographics modify their practices to. Uh, meet the needs of those incoming immigrants, right? So, um, especially Latino parents, that was mm-hmm. my, you know, my emphasis. But I did it from the standpoint of the parents, not the school system. So their perspective on what? Yeah, how, how they, how, how, yeah, what did the school do for you? How did they adopt? How did they modify their practices? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what did you? What were the big takeaways from that? I'm, I know you did a ton. You yeah, lot, that's a that's a yeah. Um, well, there was there were several, right? I mean, um, several themes. I mean, lots of themes that came out. Um, I mean, depending on the parents' sort of social background, you know, that that had a big impact, right? So, parents who came with the who came to the school systems with some sort of you know social context or social capital from their former countries were able to navigate the systems much better, right? Um, there were isolated, you know, pockets of success that did things really cool. I mean, there was like one element or middle school that deliberately um, recruited Spanish-speaking parents who sit on their school community council, right? And they provided translators for them. And um, they, the parents were really part of the decision-making process at the school in a, in a very meaningful way, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember going to one of their meetings and this one parent, you know, they were allocating money, right, that the school had. And this parent was like, no, we got to allocate money to have... Um, you know, like a parent advocate for Latino parents at the school, right? And this, you know, here's this 
immigrant parent, didn't speak English, but yet she was impacting, you know, how the school allocated like $30,000, right? So that was pretty, you know, that was an example of the type of advocacy that schools um, have the capability of doing. But unfortunately, uh, you know, this particular school district didn't have um, necessarily systems in place that were um, implementing, we and implemented across the board, right? It was more isolated success right here and there so right so was that then a principal who was yeah taking mm-hmm. the lead and absolutely of doing that yeah yeah that's pretty cool yeah in that sense it was right the, the principal was really mm-hmm. the one it was a woman in this case you know she was doing some good work mm-hmm. and how much of the the parent success was dependent on the the principal's efforts to involve them it was huge i mean you know the correlation at least from the study i mean it was a my study was a was a qualitative study, right? So, um, you know, I can't extrapolate beyond the, the small group that I observed, right? But um, the, the impact of the principal made a tremendous difference, right? And the staff and the type of staff that they had uh, at the school, right? So, um, you know, down to, you know, the secretaries, the counselors, if they had the right, the right people in those positions, those schools were a lot more um, capable of working with Latino families, right? Mm-hmm. And they just, you know, there was a more welcoming, you know, environment. Um, those type of employees took a more, you know, proactive role in supporting Latino families. Uh, schools that didn't hire with that, you know, perspective tended to, you know, at least the parents from the parents standpoint, they didn't quite, uh, you know, feel the same level of care, right? That these other schools mm-hmm. who were intentional and deliberate about servicing them. Yeah. Um, so what I'm not hearing you say, but I think you're implying is that it may not be necessary for a person in those positions to speak Spanish, but that they have. No, to it was more of this, this, this idea, this role, right. Of being, you know, taking more of an advocacy, you know, approach and being deliberate. I mean, you know, the schools that were deliberate about serving the Latino families were really the ones that are, were being successful. They, you know, um, it was interesting because some schools sort of justified, well, you know, we treat all our kids the same. We treat our mm-hmm. kids, all our kids equal. And, you know, sometimes equal doesn't, doesn't, it means different things, right? right. Um, so anyways, yeah. So, but it didn't necessarily take a Spanish speaking, you know, person, right? I mean, like this principal, she was, she didn't, she didn't speak Spanish. It was just more of her. That was, you know, something that, that she really felt compelled to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm at a Title I elementary school. We have a lot of Hispanics in our school, and um, and I've tried to learn some Spanish, but I'm not proficient yet by yeah. any means. Um, but I feel that, that that helps engender me to, oh, to those parents. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel that I have to know Spanish. For no, and, and they pick up on that. And that was, you know, those were other themes that surfaced, right? Parents pick up on, on you know, who's who's actually trying to be supportive and who's not and who's, you know, because in some instances there were people who spoke Spanish in the schools who really gave them a cold shoulder. Right. And, uh, so it wasn't necessarily just about being able to speak a uh, common language. I mean, certainly most people who spoke Spanish at schools were sympathetic and supportive. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but, um, it was more about the attitude that the schools took. Mm -hmm. It's a cold, it's more of a cultural sort of, you know, element. Right. Yeah. Which is, I think, what you're probably discovering with, with you know, as you're studying different leadership, you know, uh, attitudes and approaches, right? It really comes down to the type of culture that uh, that's being built, right? Absolutely. It's been fascinating to me to see um, 
how impactful that is. And everyone so far that I've spoken to has all agreed that it's all about the culture. Mm -hmm. And until you have that culture in place, none of the changes or successes that you're looking for are going to come because of what you're yeah. doing. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, the greatest plan, the greatest strategy, the, you know, the greatest innovation, right? But if, if there's not trust, if there's not, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of uh, uh, common, you know, ideals, yeah, you're not going to get any of the other stuff done. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, when you look at what we're doing collectively as a school district, right, and you, you look at our efforts through that lens, right. um, especially since we're such a new district, right, it's it's an interesting paradigm, right, Absolutely. To, to consider. Yeah. And, and if we didn't feel like we could make those changes at the school level because we didn't have the support from the district to make those changes, yeah. we'd never, we'd never be able to do that. Right. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, where, tell us where you did the, your research for your doctorate. What areas did I, you I did, which demographical areas? Uh, and for geographic areas also. So I did it, um, I did it here. Look, I mean, I did it locally and I, and I wanted to do it here. I mean, I went to school in New York. I don't know if you knew that, yeah. but, um, but when I did my study, I wanted to do it in Utah because Utah, Utah's an interesting place, right? It, you know, demographically it's going through, it's the fact, it's one of the fastest growing, um, states as it relates to Latinos and, uh, you know, in the Western United States, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going through this really, you know, incredible demographic shift. So that was really appealing. Obviously, the fact that I that I lived and worked in Utah was was interesting. But um, I really felt that Utah could really stand to make changes and learn from what other states have done and not done. Right. So um, that's why I wanted to do it here locally. Gotcha. So all the families you interviewed were all here. In uh -huh. Utah. They were all here, and they and they all varied. They all had children. Uh, you know, I made sure that when I did my selected, you know, well. Yeah, who who was participating? That I had people represented there who had children at the at all levels, right at the elementary, middle school, and high school level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. So, for a principal who is a school, it was a principal of a school that has a, a growing or large or small Latino population. Uh -huh. What would be some advice for how to how to establish that culture um, that's accepting and inviting specific strategies they could use to do that? Specific strategies, um, I think, well, I think your hiring practices are, are crucial, right? So, um, you know, making sure that you're hiring the right person uh, when when you're going through that process. And I think hopefully you have a way of, of identifying, you know, the right fit, right, of candidates to work in a Title I school, to work mm -hmm. in a school that's, you know, highly impacted, um, you know, socioeconomically or, you know, who has a high number of... Um, you know, students of color. So I think I think that's a, that's huge, right? Whether it's your custodian, whether it's your uh, librarian, your secretary. I think if you, I think your hiring practice have a have a, a great you know deal with uh, you know the type of culture you're establishing. I think you know and another very you know specific thing that you could do is the type of um, uh, workshops, the types of conversations that you're having as a faculty, because. Um, um, if you're going to be deliberate, right, about serving Latino students, I think you need to make sure, hey, you know, whenever you have those conversations, you know, as, as a large group that you, that, um, 
you know, that you're deliberate about saying, hey, you know what, this at this school, man, we're going to make sure that we're servicing, of course, all of our kids, but that we're paying extra close attention to our, you know, students of color, our Latino students, mm -hmm. right? I think you got to address, especially if you have, you know, what faculty that, that hasn't turned over um, and faculty who has seen the school change demographically, right? I mean, that's one of the kind of interesting scenarios that I, I'm sure you're going through, right? Where you have a teacher who started at Copper Hills, or Copper View when mm -hmm. Copper View was 90% Caucasian and now it's, you know, sort of shifting within their own tenure as teachers. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, doing some specific trainings with them, right, about, you know, what what is a microaggression, right, and how do you make sure that you don't uh, belittle kids, you know, because they are, you know, Latino or Spanish-speaking. Um, how do you how do you build on the cultural um the cultural assets that they're bringing to the table and really value those things, right? So, mm -hmm. um, I think those are all things that you can be very deliberate about and and uh, train teachers. And in fact, in some ways, you know, it's interesting because as a non-Latino, I think I think um, your your position in an in an interesting way that um, that might make the conversation a little easier than if I, I mean, I could, if I was the principal at Copperview, right. And being a Latino myself, you know, for, for principles of color, uh, it's it kind of, it's an interesting paradigm to, to, to balance, right. It's kind of, you know, this whole idea, I don't know if you've, you know, cued into, you know, Barack Obama speaking about race, right. I mean, it, there's some real interesting, you know, dichotomies and challenges that come with that territory. So I think as a non-Latino, right, I think you could even be a more forceful advocate than perhaps, you know, I could, right? Because if I'm very, I have to be not subtle, but I have to really be conscious of what I'm saying and doing because then you don't want to become, you know, people label you right away as the, you know, okay, well, this guy's the militant, you know, Latino principal who only cares about Latinos, right? Right. Does that make sense? So it's an interesting paradigm, right, to consider. It sure is. And I've thought a lot about that myself. Um, about how how I can um, include those people without without being degrading to them because I yeah. could if I say you need my help to be a part of the school more than these other kids I could see how that could be yeah. taken offensively as well. What are some ideas you have for for me in in that situation to 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 be um, to take those opportunities to reach out to them? What, what advice would you give? Um, so let me make sure I'm understanding your question correctly. You're you're wanting just some advice in terms of um, reaching out to Latino families, but not doing it in a way that's condescending, sort of. Is that is that am I understanding yeah. your question correctly? Well, you said that you'd have challenges um, as a Latino yourself um, reaching out to them. That well, not necessarily families. reaching out to the families. I'm talking about training your teachers, right? Oh, I see. Yes, Does that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, because I, you know we you something no yeah you were asking me about things t that you could do now right. to support mm -hmm. it. So I talked about your hiring practices and then your trainings and right. the conversations you're having with your faculty, right? Uh, yeah, because in terms of me making connect, I mean that that comes sort of naturally, right? right. That's, and that that's, that's where my yeah confusion no was. that comes sort of naturally. I was when it, I was talking about you having dialogue with your faculty. That makes sense. Okay, we're on the same page yeah. now. Thanks. So um, I, I see what you're saying, especially now, much better. Thanks for clarifying that for me. Um, what are some of the, uh, the specific things that you could um, 
that you could teach teachers about? You mentioned microaggression. Can you explain what that is? A well, I'm t you know, well, I mean, cultural competencies, my, you know, um, helping your teachers release so that they can see your, especially if we're talking about Latino students, right? So you can, so they can see them with a lens of, you know, empowerment, right? Or, or with a lens of, um, hey, you know what? These, these kids are actually pretty darn smart kids, pretty bright kids who have a, a great deal of potential as opposed to looking at them as, a, uh, you know, kids who, who are not going to achieve at the same level as others because of their backgrounds and so forth, mm -hmm. right? So you want, you want teachers to, um, to, yeah, to, to change their paradigm about what Latino kids are bringing to the table, right? The fact that they're bilingual, man, view that as the ultimate, you know, asset, right? As opposed to, um, you know, and I don't know if it, this goes on in your school or not, right? But I mean, I think, you know, in my experience, you know, there's a lot of times where Latino parents feel that, hey, you know what, this school doesn't value my culture, doesn't value my language, right? And mm -hmm. and that sort of automatically creates a barrier between them, right? So um, if the school is really deliberate about saying, you know, if teachers, right, are, are see what the cultural experience that the kids have, the language, you know, background that they have, if they, if they view those things as assets, that these kids can then utilize in the future for, to be successful, I think that's going to come through, right? And the kids are going to pick up on that. But if they, but if the message that the kid is getting from the school is that, hey, you know what, it's not cool to speak English, right? Or Spanish, mm -hmm. a second language, or, you know, that it's not cool to value, to, to value the fact that I'm a, you know, Mexican-American, a Latino, whatever, right? right? Um, I think if, if the school sends the wrong message, then, then I think that's going to be problematic, right? So, you know, things that you can do in the classroom, right? I mean, I think if the teachers, you know, can infuse into their, to their curriculum, you know, certain, um, characteristics that the kids are going to value, that they're going to recognize, uh, without necessarily disrupting. I know, you know, I know teachers really worry about the, you know, their curriculum, right? But if they perhaps infuse a book, you know, that, highlights uh, Latino characters, right? If they point out, you know, certain, you know, holiday traditions, if they point mm -hmm. out certain things that, that when the Latino kid sees it, they're like, whoa, this is cool, man. You know, we're, we're, cele we're celebrating what it means to be Latino, not just on one day on Cinco de Mayo, right? right? But we're actually valuing things that are connected to literacy, right? That are connected to mathematics, that are connected to science, right? And I think some teachers, you know, Fear that, hey, by doing that, am I, you know, not teaching these kids to be American, right, or whatever. And I don't think, I don't think those two things are necessarily conflicting, you know, ideas, right? But I think if a kid can feel a sense of worth, a sense of value about their cultural heritage, I think they will adopt, you know, American um, ideals even stronger, right? Mm -hmm. Because when they feel rejected from the American system, right. that's when they really turn away from those American ideals. Mm -hmm. And, and did you see evidence of that when you were interviewing the families? Uh, well, I just saw that in my own upbringing. I mean, you know, I mean, I saw that in my own upbringing. I, yeah, and I did see it with, with some of the families that, that, I, that I spoke to. Uh, absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about that, either yourself or the families you saw. Well, just, you know, with, I mean, I saw it both in my own personal experience. I saw it as a teacher, as a, as a vice principal, right? When, when kids felt, hey, you know, this institution this teacher values who i am right as a as a as a latina latino they really felt more of a connection with those people right uh when they didn't feel that same sense of welcome or that same sense of hey you know what 
I'm not going to get on your case if you speak Spanish in my class, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, then, uh, they, yeah, I mean, they, they felt connected with those with those teachers, right? But when teachers were, when they felt that the teachers were um, not valuing those assets, then that's when you had a lot of tension, right? Right. Um, and again, I, I, I saw that, I, you know, I've seen that since, you know, I was a student and as a teacher and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we're talking right now about Latinos, but those same things can happen if anybody's culture is not absolutely respected. Right, absolutely. And I think if if we weren't so homogeneous here in Utah, we'd be talking about, or I bet if you go and you talk to families who've immigrated from Greece, from, you know, Central Africa. I mean, we have a lot of refugee families Mm -hmm. here in Utah from these different countries, right? My guess is that you would find some similar themes. Yeah, so we had a, a student who had immigrated as a refugee from Africa, and and he saw shame in speaking French. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if that was because of something that had happened at school, or if he just felt like that was so different. Yeah, see, and when you get a kid like that, man, holy cow, we're like, yeah. hey, that's awesome, man, yeah. celebrate it, you know, and say, hey, let's let's add to that, man. Yeah, you know, but somehow kids do get that message, mm-hmm. and it could be little smite remarks that a teacher makes. Um, when I mean, when, so when I describe microaggressions, microaggressions are certain behaviors that we do, um, that belittle another person's, you know, background or culture, right? And, um, people do it subtly. They don't, they don't, they're not these, um, abrupt, you know, outrages, right? Where somebody, you know, yells out profanity at somebody mm-hmm. because, you know, of their race or their, you know, ethnicity and so forth. But microaggressions are more things like, you know, um, can I give you an example of something? I mean, I don't know, calling the kid, you know, asking the kid to, to stop speaking Spanish because, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Right. Um, and just little, you know, little things like that, that, um, you know, that a teacher might say or that an adult might say. Mm-hmm. Um that impacts, you know, how, how the person is perceiving their, themselves. Yeah. So, you know, we we live in an era where we need to be politically correct and and all that. And so sometimes we feel like we, to prevent being rude or disrespectful mm-hmm. or condescending to a person, we don't say anything at all. And, and there needs to be that balance between stopping inappropriate behavior at school, regardless of yeah. what's going on and, and targeting. And that's not the best word, but but focusing those things on a person's culture. And so if a student is calling another student names, whatever language it's in, that's inappropriate. Yeah, right. right. And so so what advice do you give to teachers on how to deal with, with those types of situations and how to deal with negative behavior regardless of the language and not make it about the student's cultural heritage? Yeah, so I think... I think those types of things boil down to the type of relationship that the teacher has with the, with a kid, right? And I mean, I think if if a student feels, you know, that a teacher doesn't care about them, they're going to feel picked on regardless of whether mm-hmm. the kid is Latino or not, right? Right. So if a teacher has a relationship with the child, I think they're able to help them, you know, navigate those those uh, you know experiences when the kid, you know, gets in trouble and messes up and you know mm-hmm. does something that they shouldn't, right? And and perhaps they need to work a little bit harder with those absolutely. controllers. Yeah, no, different. absolutely. It's it's so much easier to get to know those that you you know have things in common with that you're more comfortable with, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just sort of you know, human mm-hmm. nature. <laughs> so um, 
um, yeah, but I think if those teachers take an extra effort, right, to make a connection with kids who might be a little different than them, I think kids pick up on that and they, they're not, you know, they're smart. They can mm-hmm. pick up on, on, you know, when a teacher sort of tolerates them versus when a teacher really embraces them and likes them. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, let's change gears a little bit and talk about the work that you did with Greta Pruitt. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Dude, I love Greta. She was, you know, she's an angel, man. She was one of my mentors. And uh, she was, I think she was, when I first met her, she had just completed being uh, a senior administrator in Los Angeles Unified. Um, and she was doing school reform work here in the state of Utah. So she was, um, Greta was, she ran a consulting firm out of Los Angeles. It was a, it's called the Urban Learning Centers, and they had a partnership with the Los Angeles Educational Partnership, uh, who worked directly with LA Unified. And what what they did was that they would go into schools, help them go through restructuring, help them uh, go through a series of evaluations to identify areas of strength, areas of need. Um, and anyway, so they had a whole framework that they utilized. And Greta was, you know, she was the she was the uh, CEO, you know general manager, right, of this organization. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was going through college, I was working at an elementary school and who was actually one of the, uh, it was a Title I school in Provo called uh, Timpanogos Elementary. And Greta happened to be doing like a site visit um, because the school was adopting their model. And they, I think, were, and John, that's where I first met John. He was, Mm -hmm. you know, involved in that whole process and Anyway, so I met Greta in the hallway, and we talked, and she was like, hey, why don't you come out and do an internship and come work for us? And, you know, that's I went out to um, California and started working with Greta. At the time, I was studying economics. I didn't have any plans of going into education, but uh, that internship seemed intriguing enough that it that I went out there. And while in Los Angeles, I um, yeah, Greta was a huge mentor, you know, big mentor to me. And um she played, yeah, she's part of the reason why I did go into education. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things were you doing in your internship then? So what I did, my well, I mean, my specific responsibilities were to, um, I got assigned to work at Compton High School, uh, Budlong Elementary in South Central, uh, Pacoima Elementary in uh, the San Fernando Valley in Pacoima. Um, so my responsibility kind of varied a little bit in, in each school, but I was to, I had to develop a, um, a curriculum to, uh, to teach parents, right. And to help parents kind of, um, come together and, and work together, uh, especially African-American and Latino parents who really were at odds, you know, for various, you know, reasons in Compton and in South Central. And I think, a lot of it had to do with the demographic shift that those places were going through um, at the time and I think are continuing to go through where you had predominantly African-American communities who were now changing rapidly by the influx of um, Latino immigrants. So, you know, I was supposed to go in there and, yeah, get these parents to talk to each other and to work together. And I did it through um, these language classes, this language curriculum that I organized uh, where the African-American parents were learning Spanish in the Spanish parents were Spanish speaking parents were learning English. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we sat down, we talked about language, we talked about race, we talked about, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. And um, so that was kind of my role, you know. And then in addition to that, I obviously participated in what the actual um, 
that the urban learning center model was actually doing and helping schools, you know, go through this, you know, renewal, reform school improvement process. Right. And so what, what things did you take away from that, that, that led you to your doctorate at Columbia? Um, wow. That's a, I mean, so what did I take away from my internship? Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think working in Los Angeles, working in those, you know, I mean, it doesn't get any more inner city than Compton, right? Mm -hmm. Or South Central. I mean, I think it really um, got me to think about, uh, you know, what contributions I can make to to the field of education and to specifically, you know, to those types of, you know, circumstances, right? Um, So it it obviously impacted my decision to go into education, right? I, I chose to go into teaching and change my major and all that because of um, what I was experiencing and what I saw there. Um, the I think early on, but I mean that experience really helped me to look at schools differently and helped me to look at schools through the lens of school improvement. That's you know before I even declared a teaching major. So it helped me to say, hey, you know what, um, schools. Uh, don't have to be failing and they don't have to be uh, struggling and they can do certain things and apply certain principles so that they can um, serve kids who, you know, who come from very difficult backgrounds, but help them to be successful. Right. And it sort of gave me a framework that I then, you know, I, when I went and actually started teaching, right, it sort of influenced my teaching. And when I went back to get my master's and my doctorate, um, that, you know, those sort of lessons or principles that I picked up, you know, as an intern or as, you know, I, and I became an employee of the organization, right? So those things really stuck with me, right? And and I kept, and I still look at the world of um, uh, school improvement as through those lenses. So when, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting because when we as a district call a school improvement plan, a school improvement plan, I mean, to me, School improvement has more of a different meaning, right? Than writing, putting together a paper like right. the one we just, you know, that we go, the exercise mm-hmm. that we go through every year, right. where we set goals for reading, goals for science, and then we, you know, it's, it, that feels more like a dog and pony show, right? Mm-hmm. To me, school improvement is actually going into a school and assessing, okay, where are you at with your teaching and learning, right? What what type of um, things are going on, what, you know, what, what are you implementing and you really assess, right, what you're doing from a teaching standpoint. And then you're looking at uh, how, what's your management structure like and how, how are you making decisions that impact your teaching and learning and, and what is, what is, you know, your management policies and so forth. And, and then you got the whole parent support component, right? So that, that, when I think of school improvement, those are, I look at it through that lens as opposed right. to a single, um, you know, plan that you fill out and more like an overhaul and looking at everything absolutely. that you're doing throughout yeah. the entire school and not leaving any right. stone unturned absolutely it's, yeah. you know it's um yeah i mean it's really remodeling a home as opposed to get painting it right with mm-hmm. a fresh coat of paint right but actually knocking down walls and you know removing floors removing mm-hmm. carpets you know moving bathrooms that kind of thing yeah I think that's a good analogy. I've never thought of it like that. Our school is in a school of improvement right now, and that's why John has been sure. working with us. And so that's been my exposure to it as well. And so the the CSIP plan that we do seems, yeah, little, like you said, like painting walls yeah. fresh, you know. Um, and I, not, yeah, and I don't, not to be critical of it, I no. mean, that's, you know, people put on the table what they have context for, right? Mm-hmm. And if you haven't been exposed to that type of real sort of, 
I mean, I think we have elements of it, right? Like I think what EBL is trying to do with um, really impacting, you know, teaching, teaching behavior and, you know, our practices in the mm-hmm. classroom. I think that's certainly an element of school improvement, right? Yeah. But, you know, um, we don't really have a framework by which we are evaluating how we're implementing that. We don't have a decision-making model. We don't have a, I mean, we kind of do, we're, I think we're getting there. I think we're taking the right steps, right. you know, but, you know, we have a ways to go. Yeah, totally. And, and I've always thought that that education should be more focused on each individual student being successful and what that mm-hmm. particular student can do. And, um, when my oldest daughter, who has Down syndrome, started uh, getting involved with the school, then I I learned as a parent rather than as a teacher about what IEPs really mean. Yeah, isn't and, that insightful? Yeah, it's it was amazing, and and so I feel like what would be really beneficial for schools is for every school to have a an IEP for themselves or a mm-hmm. school improvement yeah, plan, absolutely, and not. Not the the one you do every year, but the big one that that we've been going through, and yeah, and the things we've learned about ourselves and 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 about our students and families, all that has been um, very transformative and made us, mm-hmm. I think, a lot better, right? Overall, um, so yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, I mean, we can talk about you know days about you know experience <laughs> in Los Angeles and so forth, but. That was a great interview with Fidel Montero. That was just the first part. Make sure you tune in next week for the second part. It's going to be great. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about the interviews that I'm doing or hear some recommendations that you have. Feel free to give me a shout out on Twitter at Jethro Jones or send me an email at jethrojones at gmail.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, SaneBox, and thank you so much for listening If you'd like, please go rate the song in iTunes or on Stitcher Radio and follow Transformative Principle on Twitter or on Facebook. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.